This is Namitha Setmota for NEJM Catalyst. Today, I am speaking with Professor Anupam Sibyl. Dr. Sibyl is the Group Medical Director of the Apollo Hospitals Group. As the Group Medical Director, which is the equivalent of the Chief Medical Officer role here in the U.S., Dr. Sibyl has played a key role in the planning, executing, and monitoring of Apollo's response to COVID in India. Clinically, he sees patients as a pediatric gastroenterologist and holds a variety of academic and research appointments. The Apollo Hospitals Group was founded in 1983. Since then, it has grown to over 71 hospitals and over 230 primary care clinics with 6,000 physicians, as well as a vast network of diagnostic centers, pharmacies, and teaching facilities. As we all know, India is in the midst of a difficult situation with an overwhelming volume of infections and shortages of critical supplies like oxygen, medications, and inpatient beds, as well as an exhausted, although dedicated, cadre of healthcare workers. In full transparency, I am an Indian American with lots of family in India, and so this discussion today is particularly important to me on many levels. Our focus today is not going to be on the macro conditions, the policy decisions, the public health infrastructure, or the international response that led to this current state, though obviously these are critical components. But rather today, we will focus on direct care delivery, the opportunities, the lessons learned, and the path ahead to get to the other side of this pandemic. Dr. Sibyl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Namita, for this opportunity. It's a privilege. We read a lot in the newspapers and the media, but tell us, Anupam, what is the current state of the pandemic from where you are very much on the front lines? Namita, I think um, we, we feel that things are stabilizing and who can understand this better than a physician who's seen it all in, in the US? You know, you've seen 33 million patients, uh, more than 600,000 deaths. We are at 25 million um, 289,000 deaths. So you know the pressure it is to be able to handle this kind of volume and especially when it hits you so suddenly. So we, we had a tough phase uh, for about four weeks, but now things are coming down from a high of 414,000 uh, cases uh, a day. We are down to about 290. Uh, so which is a significant drop and I think things therefore uh, one can say are stabilizing. Well, I'm sure that is in much due to the hard work of you and, and your teams at Apollo. Uh, tell me, what has been Apollo's approach to managing the, the surge? Uh, what tactics are working well? What tactics didn't work so well? And how did you have to adjust along the way? So let me, let me go back to March of 2020. India went on to a very comprehensive lockdown when we just had 564 cases on 24th March last year. So earlier on in March, we decided that we needed a 360 degree approach. Uh, we needed to uh, get multidisciplinary teams across uh, our network to focus on clinical management, on labs, on procurement, on communication, on uh, developing evidence-based clinical protocols. So we dedicated at that point in time 2000 beds and when the second wave came we needed to rapidly uh, scale and we went from 2000 to 4200 our testing uh, capability for rt pcr and and that was uh, significant at 10 tests per minute we scaled that up to 15 tests per minute our protocol now is uh, in its 40th revision a red book that we follow across the system 
is in its 16th version. Stay at home was something we started last year uh, and we had 10,000 patients uh, that we managed at home through technology, uh, through telehealth. And we had 10,000 in nine months and this time around we've had 10,000 in 30 days. Uh, we looked at enhancing our uh, uh, I stay in hotels. We, we had 3,000 hotel rooms across uh, eight uh, cities and we've seen a considerable uh, utilization of these in the second wave. Our programs of, of delivering care at the doorstep, whether it's sampling or whether it's delivering medicines and we are doing as many as 45,000 home deliveries per day. So I think all that we did last year has come in very handy um, in, in terms of uh, living up to what the community expects from us in the second phase. But of course, when things in Delhi uh, really got, got out of hand, um, in, in, in a way, we had to add another 40 bedded uh, temporary facility with that in 72 hours. Um, we've been looking at houses that we have a seamless delivery of, uh, of medication for, of consumables, having worked with different state governments. I should add here that health uh, is a state subject. It's not a federal uh, subject. So state governments have full autonomy in how they want to administer healthcare. Uh, delivery. So in terms of procurement of medication, we've been working with different state governments, manufacturers to make sure that we have enough supplies. Of course, uh, when it came to oxygen, because the requirement increased many fold and Delhi had a particularly difficult phase with oxygen because Delhi consumed a lot and does not produce any oxygen. So the oxygen had to come from the south and the west and tankers can take as many as three days to get to Delhi. So oxygen was a challenge and we worked with, with the manufacturers and, and a host of agencies to make sure that our patients got the oxygen that they needed. Uh, in terms of being able to use technology, well, we had developed last year a COVID risk scan because people were very worried and they wanted authentic information and that has continued to benefit um, our citizens and we've had 20 million downloads and overall we were just looking at how many lives we might have touched through our different programs and it's it's pretty high at 79 million. That amount of scale and scope, uh, particularly over such a short time period, is, is truly remarkable. Uh, what were some challenges that you all faced in, in, in implementing uh, some of these strategies and uh, how did you overcome them? Well, I think I'll start with the positives first and what worked well for us. Um, I think we were able to use technology really well and connect with our teams across uh, the length and breadth of the country. And uh, with the team approach that we strengthened with the 24 by 7 connectivity, very simple, rapid decision making, um, a huge amount of empowerment to local teams, the spirit that we built of working together I think helped us a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we could reach out to the community at their doorstep helped because people were very afraid of availing healthcare and, and they needed that help right at home. Uh, I think technology has been a, a huge boom. Our clinicians, nurses have uh, really come together. And I think while we've been working very hard clinically, there's been a fair amount of research that's come out. And if you go on to PubMed, PubMed Central, and, and type COVID-19 and Apollo hospitals, there has many as 221 papers. So I think time has been used quite productively. And I think we've learned so much from the 150,000 patients that we've treated from the families who've trusted us 
with, with their family members. And I think it, it has been an experience uh, when we look back that has taught us so much and made us a much more stronger organization. Now, what was, was hard was, uh, I think we were taken aback by the numbers. If you look at all the predictive models, they had actually suggested that India would get into a peak somewhere in May and June, and that didn't happen. The peak actually happened on 16th of September when we hit 97,000 cases. And then things started to get better. And in February, the entire country saw less than 10,000 cases. Now for a country with a population of 1.35 billion, less than 10,000 cases is, is remarkable. And then of course, come March, we saw cases go up in Maharashtra, April, the numbers just started to rise very rapidly. And then on May 6th, when we had the peak at 414,000 patients, I think the system really got stretched. Uh, I think uh, while there was physical fatigue, there was also this emotional trauma uh, on, on just having to care for so many patients. I think the pressure on the staff uh, was, was immense. We needed to deploy more staff. So we had to think of how is it that we're going to get more uh, clinicians. So we got our specialists, our cardiologists, our gastroenterologists, neurologists to buddy with internists and, and pulmonologists and critical care uh, doctors. We got the national board, which oversees postgraduate education. And, and we have more than 900 fellows and, and trainees. And their um, training was extended by three months so that they could support us. And of course, one of the challenges that we found was uh, that with so much information available to the public at large, and as we all know, some of that information is incorrect and sometimes it's, it's partly incorrect, um, vaccine hesitancy came in. So we started off with, with a bang and then of course, uh, people started thinking about and there were doubts about vaccination. So that was um, in, in many ways uh, disappointing. And then we but we decided, well, we needed to impart education. So our clinicians went out on television and, and did a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, effort on social media to promote vaccination. And then we uh, recently came out with a study that looked at healthcare professionals. And, and this is uh, out of Delhi, where 3,235 healthcare uh, workers who were vaccinated. And we looked at infection rates in them, and it was just 2.6%. And out of the 85 who um, became positive, after vaccination, only two of them needed hospitalization. No one went into ICU and no one died. So, you know, that was the kind of positive messaging that we wanted to disseminate. And, and, and we are doing more, more and more of that. And now we will very soon have data for about 33,000 healthcare workers that uh, we would have vaccinated and tracked for infection. Let me uh, rewind back to your comment about the emotional trauma and exhaustion of the of the healthcare staff. Burnout was last summer and quite frankly continues to be a big issue at our institutions here in, in Boston. Tell me a little bit about how you all are addressing uh, clinician burnout. So, you know, this is at multiple levels. First of all, is there anything we can do to decrease the workload for stuff that clinicians shouldn't do? So we started looking at non-essential administrative work, uh, some amount of documentation that someone else could do. Um, we uh, started deploying the standardized protocol quite effectively and getting some of the junior doctors to, to follow the protocols with, of course, under supervision, but taking some of the pressure off the senior, senior docs uh, you know that in India, uh, family is central to our existence. So when family members started to fall ill and they needed support, we made sure that we reached out uh, 
because we at Apollo believe that we are one large family. Um, we started emotional um, support groups. And we have this uh, global Indian physician COVID-19 collaborative. Uh, you see, there are 1.4 million doctors of Indian origin across the globe, and we have a substantial population in, in the US, UK, the Caribbean, South Africa, and, and in many parts of the world. So GAPIO, which is the Global Association of Physicians of Indian Origin, has now members in 53 countries. So GAPIO, along with API, which is the American um, organization, BAPIO, which is the British Association, the Australian, the Canadians came together and uh, founded this collaborative. The idea was to exchange knowledge because we knew that what was happening in the US and UK would happen in India a few weeks later. But we also felt the need for emotional support. And because of the important role spirituality plays in India, we had uh, a lot of spiritual talks. We had Sister Shivani, we had Sadhguru, we had uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, and then we had His Holiness the Dalai Lama address us. So I think that also helped. Uh, for nurses, we uh, we've launched a program called Angel. Um, you know, thanking a nurse, uh, a program with a lot of partners outside uh, of Apollo, outside of healthcare, about scholarships, recognition, respect. And I think we've been trying to do a lot of these initiatives really. Uh, to make sure that we take away some of some of this emotional strain and, and, and pressure that everyone's facing. There has, switching gears a little bit, we have been all reading about extensive reports around problems with the supply chain of necessary resources, medications, oxygen. What are some examples of how your teams are coordinating with government agencies, other hospitals in the area, and community organizations to secure supplies, but also as well as to provide support to other organizations who might need it? So as um, you know, India's largest healthcare provider in the private sector, we do have a lot of links that have been built over three and a half decades with, with companies, and that's equipment, or a pharmaceutical vaccine. And because we buy such large volumes and we had decided very early on that we will place orders, whether it was vaccines or whether when remdesivir became licensed or when other medication became licensed. So we did not have a supply problem, but what we saw was that smaller institutions, smaller hospitals that did not have the ability to procure those supplies were struggling. So we did reach out and, and support it uh, in, in a small way because we had our own needs that were, that were very big, but we did reach out and say, we can help you with this. We can make the connection so that you were able to get your supplies. Now, oxygen is, is something, as I mentioned, a little complicated because of the fact that you know, it has to come, say, into Delhi from other locations. So we didn't have these problems in other states where oxygen is produced. But Delhi was a challenge, so we had to look at uh, procuring um, oxygen from multiple sources. The government was uh, worked very, the different governmental agencies worked very closely with the public sector, the private sector. And I distinctly remember one evening I got an SOS from a hospital, which is about seven or eight kilometers away from us, a large hospital. And they said that we're going to run out of oxygen in, in like 60 minutes. And do you have a tanker? And I said, yes, we have a tanker, but we haven't started unloading it. So why don't you take the tanker and we dispatch the tanker to them? And I said, when you get your tanker, you send it 
to us. So I think we saw the spirit of everyone coming together. Also gave us opportunities to look at, at systems, for example, for oxygen. We realized that we could actually save oxygen. And I don't think clinicians think of oxygen as something that they need to worry about. And you, for example, when you're having tea or, or you're eating a meal, the oxygen kind of continues to flow and you don't need that. So we figured out that we could save about 10%. So, you know, I think going forward, we've learned how to conserve oxygen. And I think that that was a learning. Um, we have a large network, which is uh, spread across. So, you know, we needed some ECMO. So we would transport ECMO from one uh, city to another. Sometimes we needed to move ventilators if there was a sudden spike or certain cases in a particular location. So all that was possible because of the ability to support each other uh, through a very large network. Of course, we, we reached out to smaller hospitals through our eICU platform. Uh, and uh, we were supporting nine centers. Yes, telemedicine has become very, very important now. And we are seeing uh, on any given day, um, you know, 3,000, 4,000 teleconsults. Uh, we've done 120,000 free teleconsults uh, supporting uh, uh, colleagues in other parts of the country using our, you know, using this huge advantage of, of telemedicine. The government of India uh, supported telemedicine very early on and early last year they passed rules on, on uh, how to encourage telemedicines and give a lot of clarity and I think that's been very helpful as well. Let's talk for a minute about vaccines. You mentioned vaccine hesitancy earlier, earlier on and some tactics around social media, the clinicians sharing the, the positive aspects of it. How, uh, what do you see happening in the weeks and months ahead around uh, vaccinations in, uh, in India? So let me give you a, a sense of, um, you know, what vaccination entails in India. So the vaccination campaign would launch on 16th of January. We started off with healthcare workers and then moving on to frontline and then older than 60 and older than 45 with comorbidities. And what was the target? The target is 300 million. Now 300 million is just 30 million short of the entire population of the United States and 30 million more than the fourth most populated country in the world, Indonesia. So that was just phase one. Uh, where are we today? United States has uh, administered 276 million vaccines. India has administered 185 million. The highest number of vaccines administered in a single day uh, United States 4.6 million, India 4.3 million. Uh, we need to scale up and that is going to happen. Uh, the, the government has, uh, has mentioned that we will have as many as uh, about 130 million doses available per month uh, from, uh, from July. And by the end of the year, we will have two billion doses. So what we're going to see in the coming months is scaling up like the world has never seen. We at Polo have 6,000 touch points when we look at our diagnostic centers, clinics, hospitals, pharmacies. And we have set ourselves the target with the supply, um, which is going to get enhanced in the coming weeks of vaccinating as an organization, 20 million Indians by October. So uh, we are going to see some very dramatic uh, moves in vaccination, uh, and, and, and I think that is really going to turn the tide for us. Are there any challenges that you're anticipating in order to get to that 20 million by October? I think we, we've, we've now planned this very well, so we don't visualize. I mean, if the vaccines come and we 
firmly believe they will with more and more uh, vaccines getting licensed and also reproduction for uh, the three that we already have in, in, in use uh, increasing considerably. Uh, I think the challenges when it, when it comes to uh, the pandemic, we, we're going to have to uh, address the issue of uh, human resource exhaustion. I mean, a break is essential. Uh, so that, that is something that we're hoping we, we'll get a bit of a break when, when the numbers come down considerably. And, and we hope and pray that there isn't a third wave, but if there is, at least uh, there would have been a period of rest for our, our uh, human resources. Uh, I think um, lessons in the second wave uh, will help us plan better for the third wave. And that is, if you see a spike in a particular part of the country, then it doesn't take very long if there are no restrictions for the numbers to spread across the country. And I think with the kind of restrictions we've had in most states, the numbers have come down. And I think should there be a rise anywhere in the country, I think different state governments will act rather quickly uh, next time around. Uh, I think the public-private partnership that we've seen uh, this time around, I think uh, the foundation has been strengthened and I think we'll work very closely. And uh, for, for those outside India, um, I might want to add that about 65% of healthcare in India is through the private sector. So it's extremely important for the private sector to play a very important role in, uh, in managing this pandemic. Uh, when we um, start getting to a figure, hopefully, of uh, vaccinating 5 million Indians a day uh, in July, I think uh, we, will, we will see uh, quite a shift in, in uh, how we've been looking at the pandemic. Let's end on a positive note of more of a frontline uh, perspective. Can you share one success story from the last few weeks? So let me share a, a few um, very quickly. Um, so, you know, uh, non-communicable disease, a lot of people in the first few months of the pandemic were really afraid of coming to hospital. Uh, we uh, perform more than 1,400 solid organ transplants a year, every year. And last year, uh, from 1st of April um, 20 to 31st March 21, we did 866 solid organ transplants. Now this year, if you just look at March, April and May, and you know, March is when the numbers started to increase. April was a huge surge and May, of course, was the peak. We have actually performed 237 solid organ transplants. So that, and when you do solid organ transplants, this includes 42 liver transplants. You know, these are complex, which means the team is really committed managing COVID on one side and non-COVID work on the other side. Uh, we've uh, we've uh, done air rescues for patients, uh, Indian standard uh, out, outside India who've uh, needed to come in. We've actually airlifted, uh, we've gone into another city uh, through an air ambulance, started a patient on ECMO and transported that patient. And, and we have so many examples of patients having done well and gone home. And of course, I think we all have a great degree of joy from the fact that a hundred year old doctor in Hyderabad went home. <laughs> and on that note, Anupam, thank you to you and all of your teams for all that you are doing. And thank you for speaking with NEJM Catalyst today. Thank you so much, Namita. I'd like to thank uh, um, the medical community across the world who've been so generous in their support, sharing their knowledge, what their key learnings have been, and how governments across the world have uh, 
have reached out and said, we'll support you with whatever you need. So I think uh, in India, we believe that Vasudeva Kutambakam, which means that the world is one family. And I think uh, what we've gone through with the second phase or second wave has just reaffirmed our faith in that we all are one large family. Thank you.